Welcome to the El Progreso podcast. I'm Jose Formoso, a technology and systems reporter based in Silicon Valley. On today's show, we speak about the latest news from the U.S.-Mexico border, with undocumented people applying for asylum and coming in through other means in what government agencies say are record numbers. We talk to immigration experts about what we should expect in the next few months. With the Biden administration appearing to try to move away from the Trump policies that led to unimaginable suffering for thousands, many note they seem to be continuing some of the same harmful policies. We'll speak with the director of Border Angels, an immigration advocacy organization that, among its efforts, places large water jugs in the desert for people crossing the border. We'll get a sense of how that organization and others like it reach out to immigrant day laborers in the U.S. and help them with basic needs, especially during COVID, how thousands of children are still in dire need, and how Latinx inside tech companies feel about tools they work on being used to apprehend these people at the border and inside the country's heartland. Finally, we'll speak to a San Francisco-based Latinx band whose songs describe the city's political battlefields of gentrification and the immigrant experience. We hope you enjoy it. Our first guest is Dulce Garcia, the executive director of Border Angels, an immigrant advocacy organization based at the border in San Diego, California. We first spoke to her last year while doing research into how we would approach a potential immigration episode. We thought that talking to someone who was on the front lines of the issue every day, who had to manage the same legal systems immigrants do, and whose family also includes undocumented immigrants, would be the best person to talk to about these issues to contextualize immigration laws and how they are developing under the new Biden administration. As she will tell us, some things have changed, but many more have so far stayed the same. So get us up to date about what's happened in the six, seven months since the Biden administration has come into power. What has changed and what has not when it comes to the approach to undocumented immigrants, specific laws and how they affect the undocumented? Yes, I wish I had some great news to share with you, Jose, but unfortunately, some of the worst policies that were in effect during the Trump administration are still in effect today. During the Trump administration, the administration created a humanitarian crisis at the border, and it was very much intentional with the purpose of dehumanizing people, dehumanizing our migrant community. It created policies so inhumane that it would deter people from coming over to the U.S. and asking for asylum. Now, let's remember asylum. It's a, it's a right uh, that is given not only under U.S. national law, but also international law. Well, today, with the Biden administration, families, women, children are deciding to cross unlawfully because there is no path for them to make their claim to asylum. So this policy, this idea that... Uh, migrants bring disease and therefore we should close the border to them because we're going through a pandemic also known as an enforcement of title 42 started during the Trump administration and it's still ongoing today. And just recently the Biden administration renewed title 42, this idea that we're going to close the border to protect Americans from the pandemic, leaving everyone outside only for essential travel and asylum is not considered an essential travel. So we have in Tijuana an encampment right now of 2,000 people, including children and women. And we've spoke to some women, and some women said that they had to make this horrible decision of sending their teenage sons because they thought they were going to get killed by the gangs. 
and sent them across the border unaccompanied, alone, because the alternative is to stay in this encampment where they may get killed or they may risk their life going through the desert, hopefully get apprehended by a border patrol and get processed through as an unaccompanied minor. But those are the choices, the horrible decisions that these people have to make because the Biden administration continues to enforce a policy that the Trump administration used as a weapon against our community. As Dulce says, the border situation has indeed not been solved, and people are suffering because of it. According to the U.S. government and immigration reporting, there has been an influx of asylum requests by midsummer because of expectations of better protections from the new administration. Still, because the Trump era created a backup list of tens of thousands of people that started to get processed, most of the new people that have come to the border this year and asked for help have been rejected, getting stranded at the border. With growing fear they might catch COVID at a shelter there or because they are afraid to return home to an unstable and dangerous environment, many have tried to cross over by themselves. Es un drama que parece no tener fin. Decenas de migrantes volvieron a cruzar el río Grande. La mayoría, mujeres cargando a sus hijos pequeños y con un miedo difícil de ocultar. Esiadi tiene 21 años y viene con su bebé de tres meses. Sí, me asusté, pensé que nos íbamos a caer de la lancha. Muchos no saben nadar y por eso al llegar a tierra estadounidense, el abrazo es oración y catarsis. Gracias, padre, gracias. Solo esperan que todos los sacrificios del camino hayan valido la pena. Hemos pasado hambre, frío, todo. No queremos que nos manden a nuestros países. In May 2021, there were more border crossing apprehensions in a month, about 170,000 in 15 years. Most of the caught people have come from the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, with many others from Brazil, Ecuador, and other countries and continents. And immigrants' fear and desperation have become even more acute in recent months. Human Rights First report said in April that there had been 492 attacks and kidnappings of asylum seekers since Biden took office. And other health groups, such as Doctors Without Borders, have noted that sexual abuse of women has not dissipated. In 2017, the French group indicated that one-third of all female migrants experienced sexual abuse and most experienced violence. Tonight, new images of the record migrant surge, raft after packed raft arriving in Texas. As officials here investigate three disturbing allegations of neglect, including one involving sexual abuse. Inside this San Antonio HHS facility, housing 1,600 migrant teenage boys. HHS not commenting on the allegations, telling NBC News it has a zero-tolerance policy for all forms of sexual abuse. Advocates of the new administration have pointed out that the Remain in Mexico policy that Trump used to send back virtually everyone has been scaled back. Children that are showing up to the border unaccompanied, as Dulce will point out, are usually taken in and eventually processed. But most adults are still being sent back. And the ICE facilities described as inhumane by experts during the Trump administration still house more than 27,000 people as of the end of July with 13% of them asylum seekers. U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which is separate from ICE, held 17,778 people on August 1st, and almost 3,000 of them were unaccompanied minors. 
And in a report last week, NBC News revealed that because Border Patrol facilities are crowded, the U.S. will start moving, quote, many unprocessed families to ICE facilities where they will either be given ankle monitors and released so they can make court dates later or get deported immediately. They will also do a health screening, provide vaccines, and connect them with nonprofit immigrant organizations if they are available. Could you get into the weeds of the 42 law? You're an attorney. It seems to be an excuse for them to reject potentially legal and real asylum requests. How are they doing that from a legal sense? And my my follow-up question is to ask about the children's side of it, because my understanding was that the Biden administration are putting into shelters inside of the United States a lot of children that are coming through. So if you could explain and clarify that. Yes. So Title 42, it's actually an old law. It's been in the books, but it hadn't been used. The Trump administration started to use it during the pandemic and said, we're going to close the border because the government has this right to this discretion to close the border. And with that, they determined that essential travel did not include asylum seekers. So if you show up at our border, normally you should be able to be processed through. Well, the, the prior administration decided to close the border, not include asylum seekers in, in these protections. And so if you want to make a claim to asylum, there is no avenue for you to do so. And you're stuck outside the U.S. There's just no, no application you can submit to come through the port of entry. So this old law is renewed every month. The administration decides whether to keep it in the books, to keep enforcing it, or, or to get lifted and get rid of it. The Biden administration made that decision back in February 19. It started to process a few asylum seekers that were already in the MPP program, those that were told that they had to remain in Mexico. That was a program that started during the Trump administration and created such chaos in our border. Well, the Biden administration said, we're going to process those people and everyone else is going to be left out. So what happened was people were confused and they they thought asylum seekers were going to now be processed through. And so they started to arrive at a port of entry in February. Then the Biden administration every month kept renewing Title 42. In May, we thought it was going to be lifted because more people were getting vaccinated in the U.S. because testing was readily available. And we thought because testing also started to become available in Tijuana, that they would be processed through. Instead, the Biden administration renewed it another month. And then in June, we thought for sure, since 70% of, of the population in our region had been vaccinated, that perhaps the border would open here, at least in, in, the, in the Tijuana-San Diego region. And it was not. And then it was renewed for another month. And here we are in August, and it's just been renewed again. So now Title 42 is set to expire uh, August 21st. But really, there's no indication that it's going to be lifted. There's speculation that it's going to be renewed again. This idea that migrants bring disease over to the U.S. and therefore we use it as an excuse to exclude migrants that we don't want in the U.S. This has been around for hundreds of years. And in fact, Title 42 was approved into September with the Center for Disease Control saying that there was still a public health justification for keeping it on the books. But just this week, on Thursday, September 16, 2021, 
A federal judge ordered the Biden administration to stop using Title 42 within two weeks. The order will surely be challenged into October 2021 and possibly beyond by the governments of conservative U.S. states, especially those at the border like Texas. It's important to note that the order by U.S. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan only applies to families, meaning the Biden administration will still likely use it on the thousands of single adults asking for asylum, pending those challenges. Omar Jadwat, the current director of the ACLU's Immigrants' Rights Project, said after the announcement that President Biden should have, quote, ended this cruel and lawless policy long ago, end quote. And it's true that, even though President Biden has been in power for only seven months, and the new breaks on Title 42 may help, the time to make decisions that may help undocumented immigrants may be closing. As we were about to publish this episode in late August 2021, we learned that a Texas judge ruled the administration needed to revive Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, commonly known as the Migrant Protection Protocols, or the MPP program. A week later, the Supreme Court, with its current conservative majority of 6-3, to three, declined to issue a stay of the lower court's ruling, shocking immigrant advocates. Based on our conversations with experts on undocumented cases, the return of MPP could most likely affect the type of families that have been getting through into the U.S., in addition to the thousands of undocumented and unaccompanied children who have been taken in by the HHS. Instead of staying with a sponsor in the U.S. to await their asylum hearings, many of them will be sent to Mexico or back to their own homes. Just to be clear, the Supreme Court's decision on MPP is not connected to the Title 42 order though the court may end up deciding on the latter as well. More importantly, in the year plus that it was online under Trump, human rights advocates, including the ACLU, noted there were more than 1,500 publicly reported cases of financial coercion, rape, and murder of asylum seekers. Practically, it also led to a huge number of people missing their hearings back in the U.S., 44% of them. At press time, the director of Homeland Security has said the administration will challenge the court ruling while at the same time complying with the order, quote, in good faith, which will require talking to the Mexican government about possible ways to start up the program. This good faith designation is at the core of the decision. It says Biden's government has not followed the proper legal process as it has slowly attempted to disentangle it. In the meantime, the future and safety of thousands of people's lives are in flux and at risk. Hundreds of years, we've, we've had the idea of criminalizing migrants, saying that they bring in disease, when in reality, it's a poor excuse, because we do have a way to process folks in that keeps everyone safe. And there are organizations on the ground willing to do this work, willing to do the testing, willing to do the vaccination, willing to house migrants, willing to support with transportation, all of the public services that a government should provide that the both federal government and the Mexican government are failing with, local organizations on the ground are providing that and are willing to welcome migrants in a dignified way. But here we are fighting the the Biden administration, it's unbelievable because of all the promises and the hope that we had when we spoke back in December. I was hopeful. I thought for sure Title 42 would have been lifted on day one. 
And asylum would have been protected on day one because those were promises from the Biden administration during the campaign. But here we are in August and the border is still close to asylum seekers. And we have children sleeping in tents without access to bathrooms, not knowing where their next meal is going to come from, no access to nutrition, to medical care, no access to legal information or any information that comes from the Biden administration or the Mexican government that is reliable. And it's just created a lot of chaos, heartache, and even death in this encampment. And that's a direct result of the continued enforcement of these policies that were used during the prior administration and are still heard in our community today. So I I wish I had better news we wanted to celebrate by now, to, and, and I was hoping that the Biden administration would have figured out a process to get people into the U.S. in a way that is safe and, and still hasn't done so. There was a, a, a case that was being litigated by a friend from ACLU where they won during this litigation a small window of opportunity for some people to be able to process their applications only because ACLU sued and while the lawsuit is going, they allowed some people to cross through. So this mechanism that opened, uh, during, it's called the WISHA cases because of the name of the case. So the organizations on the ground, it was our task to go in there, to go into the encampment, to organize, to fill out the forms for them, to get their applications in and get them processed. Thanks to five other organizations, along with a Border Angels, we were able to provide these legal consultations, fill out the forms for these folks in the encampment, and about 900 people received a date of entry, so they've either crossed into the U.S. or should be crossing in the next few days. But that mechanism is gone now because it wasn't something that the Biden administration created. It was only as a result of the case, and the case is ongoing and the Biden administration is saying, we're not going to do that anymore. And so instead of taking steps forward, we're, we're closing the few opportunities that were available to these people. And it's true that until this month, because of that ACLU suit against the government forcing them to negotiate with them and come up with an alternative to rejection, the Homeland Security exemption for, quote, particularly vulnerable individuals helped immigrants get in. This program, developed with human rights organizations like Border Angels, HIAS, the International Rescue Committee, and Asylum Access Mexico, allowed the government to reject less than half of family asylum requests this year. But now that the administration announced this month in August that it would end that exemption process for families seeking asylum, it has forced these human rights organizations to drop out of the program to identify those most vulnerable people. In other words, they can't do the government's work for them anymore. They had all been working under the assumption the Biden administration would end Title 42, making it less difficult to apply for asylum. In a statement to the Washington Post last week, Oscar Chacon, executive director of advocacy group Alianza America, said that continuing to keep Title 42 for August 2021 and possibly beyond is, quote, a major blow to the principle of humanitarian protection for families and children. And right now it's summer. It is so hot. The only way for them that they see they can reach safety is if they try to cross through the desert or try to cross through the ocean. And we've seen an increase in maritime crossings as well. 
and that has resulted in death. And so when you close the few opportunities that they have to cross lawfully into the U.S., we forget that they're still very desperate to survive. So they're going to do whatever they can because the alternative is also death. And so they're going to try their luck crossing through the desert in 120 degree weather with their children. So we're still seeing families that are crossing. That hasn't changed. And, and in combination with Kamala Harris going abroad saying, do not come to our border, that also adds on to the stigma that has been created in the last few years about migration. So it's all around a crisis, a humanitarian crisis that has not changed. There, there is no surge of migrants at the border. These people have been waiting for years for the asylum process to be restored. And there was a bit of hope with the Biden administration. And so they showed up in Tijuana because they've been waiting in, in Mexico they show up in Tijuana thinking that Biden is now in office and therefore doors would open to them. And they found themselves with a horrible reality. Uh, 2,000 of them stuck in this, in this encampment. Um, in this space, they don't have access to clean bathrooms. They don't have access to potable water, to food. Women have lost their babies. Older women have passed away from medical complications. Some had already their date of entry scheduled and passed away while, while they were waiting for that opportunity to come to the U.S. And without any support from the Mexican government or the U.S. government, the big NGOs are not on the ground. So we've offered, when we were there in March, we offered tents and blankets, hygiene products, masks. And with other organizations more recently, we've been coordinating to provide food, there are two of the shelters that we support that have been doing this work. Um, and with other organizations like AFSC, Psicólogos Sin Fronteras, Unified U.S. Deported Veterans, uh, Pala San Diego, we worked to do some of the legal consultations. But unfortunately, that has stopped as well because the Biden administration is saying there's no more space for them in, in our facilities. It's saturated. We can't process them. And, and it's heartbreaking because we know that they can get tested. They show up at the port of entry with a negative COVID test as a requirement for them to be able to cross through. So the idea that Title 42 is there to protect the U.S. is just a horrible, poor excuse because we know that these folks can isolate once they reach the U.S. They can uh, be vaccinated. We're, we're really infuriated at the whole situation because we know that people are dying in that space. And like that, that's the situation in all of the, the shelters that we support. There are at max capacity, all the 15 shelters that we support, they were struggling. The first few months with the Biden administration enforcing expulsions and the Biden administration would take money resources to apprehend people, someone, people in, in Texas fly them over to California to expel them through Tijuana to disrupt their migration pattern. And so we have resources being used to fly people across the, the U.S. to then expel them into Tijuana and create chaos in these shelters. So at any given night, there's one shelter that would get 200 people a night that were expelled into Tijuana. 
So the shelters have been struggling throughout the entire Biden administration. It's not one crisis, it's another one, but it's very much as a direct result of these policies. They have recently announced that they were stopping the expulsions, but they are going to enforce now expedited removal, which is a, a very similar mechanism where you're expedited back, uh, you're expelled, you're deported, and with that comes record-keeping, criminalization. So it's the Biden administration is going back to things that the Trump administration was doing to discourage people from migrating. Since it resurfaced in March 2020, Title 42 has been used to expel immigrants without a right to a trial, allowing the U.S. to stop immigration from countries with high numbers of confirmed COVID-19 cases. More than half a million people have been rejected using this law just this year, despite the fact the U.S. has had a higher incidence of infections and rates of infections. But the way it was resurfaced illustrates how the Trump administration criminalized immigration policy. That month, March 2020, then-Vice President Pence forced it through despite opposition from CDC officials and physicians working for the Department of Homeland Security, who at the time, and since then, determined border migrants did not provide a health risk to the U.S., Reporting from the Associated Press at the time found CDC doctors refusing to comply, saying closing the border to migrants in this way would not slow down the COVID virus. But Pence forced CDC Director Robert Redfield to use the agency's special legal authority in the pandemic. In a letter to Redfield in April 2020, Dr. Anthony So, a professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, said then that Title 42, quote, threatens to amplify dangerous anti-immigrant sentiment and xenophobia. Yet, the Trump White House pushed the CDC to make the change, alluding to their possible job replacement if they didn't go along with it. I wanted to go back to migrants showing up to the border with a negative test. What happens after these migrants are showing up fine, but now they are stuck at the border? Are some of them getting the virus from having to be in these shelters? What's the virus situation like? When we talk about shelters... We're not talking about state-of-the-art fancy facilities. We're talking about people that donated their garages, their churches, their homes, any space that they could open up that became a shelter and little by little took on a form of a more formal shelter. So we have various types of shelters, some housing 700 people at one time, like Templo Embajadores that houses 700 people, including children. And then we have the smaller ones that house 15, 20 migrants, sometimes only a single man. What they all have in common is this difficulty of uh, isolating, right? Keeping a distance. During the pandemic, we kept telling them, you have to use PPE. You have to be six feet apart. You have to use masks all the time. But it's incredibly hard to do so in a space where there's 200 other people living with you, 700 other people in tents, right? And even in the encampment that's an open air encampment in Tijuana, and you have tents, sometimes those tents would be shared with another family. Or sometimes you'll have to share it with with your siblings, and there's a few of you there. And it's really difficult to socially distance in these spaces. COVID-19 inoculations have sped up in communities along the U.S.-Mexico border. Human rights advocates have warned that camps like this one in Tijuana, Mexico, are a ticking time bomb for contagion. Here, asylum seekers and refugees are not only exposed to COVID-19, but also outbreaks of chickenpox, tuberculosis, and other communicable diseases. 
So our primary task, certainly in the beginning of, of the pandemic, was to make sure that none of these shelters were lacking for resources to be able to disinfect their sheets, their clothing. And we provided washers and dryers so that they could keep up with this. But you try your best and, and then you have incidences no matter what, because we're talking about people migrating and, and sometimes staying temporarily in these shelters. So you have migration within within Tijuana as well. We had the passing of one of the pastors, an incredible human being that we, we miss uh, in Camino de Salvación. Um, and, and that was because of the labor this human took on at his own expense and seeing for others and protecting others. He became infected uh, with COVID-19 and, and passed away as a result. So we've had these difficulties in these shelters Right now, and we're talking about August, there's already been a push for vaccines and testing. And in the shelters, there's been a brigade of volunteers that have taken on that work. Some shelters that haven't been reached yet, but we're working on on, on getting them uh, vaccinated. And of course, the one space that is always left out is the encampment. They They have set up 43 points in Tijuana where people can go and get vaccinated and get tested, but there isn't a group of people going to the encampment to make sure that they're vaccinated. Some of them have mobility issues. Some of them are very sick. Some of them can't, they can't walk for 20 minutes. Transportation is quite a challenge in those spaces, but I know all of this work has been primarily left for the shelters, the directors or local organizations to work on and the governments need to do a lot more to protect these people. I know the U.S. had sent some vaccines donated to Tijuana, and that was a huge ordeal and welcomed, but the encampment was not part of that effort. So there's work to be done in protecting those people in this encampment. Um, um, and so we have the, we have hope at one point, the excuse that COVID-19 is the reason why the border is closed to asylum seekers is going to have to end because these folks are going to get vaccinated soon. The frustrating thing for people in support of a more humane immigration response is that after nearly a year and a half of migrants showing up at the border without high incidence of the virus, COVID-19 tests are coming up positive more and more in the last couple of months, which plays into an anti-immigration rhetoric coming from far-right figures like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. On August 1st, there were about 1,000 immigrants that were positive and quarantined in detention centers or other facilities. However, doctors and public health experts still say there is no evidence that recent immigrants are leading to any outbreak or rise in infections anywhere in the U.S. Like everywhere else, the rise is driven by unvaccinated Americans passing it on. Additionally, the rates at which immigrants at the border are testing positive, both inside and outside refugee facilities, are about the same as that of its surrounding areas. Perhaps to both protect the growing number of people and to reduce the possibility of political blame, the Biden administration, it was reported this week by the Washington Post, is readying more Johnson & Johnson vaccines for immigrants being processed into the United States. It will not, however, be offered to the thousands that are sent back using Title 42. The government says about 20,000 migrants have so far taken the vaccine, but since they are not requiring it, 
more than 30% of people have rejected taking them. A lot of the services that Border Angels provides, the water drops, the legal services. How have any of these services provided by Border Angels been affected by the last six months change and the pandemic? I know that you mentioned in December that uh, a lot of the water drops were postponed, uh, except for people that were really experienced to do it. Can, can you go through the programs uh, that you provide and how they have changed or not in the last six months? To start, all of our programs are still very much needed during this administration, if not more. The water drop program is still not open to the public. Only a selective number of experienced volunteers go into the desert every weekend in 120 degree weather, sometimes more, carrying 30 pounds, water, food, things to cool people in the summer off. That hasn't stopped. In the winter, they were providing blankets and socks and, and hats and things to keep people warm. That never stopped. And so our team of, of dedicated volunteers have been covering the desert and seeing 100% consumption in a lot of the routes, meaning people are still crossing and make a drop of water and supplies. And on their way back, they see it's already been consumed. We are just so grateful to the volunteers that risk their lives out there because it is not easy to be trekking the desert in this very uh, dangerous weather. As far as our, our bond program, that is still very much needed. <laughs> and with this Biden administration, we actually saw an increase of detention We've seen more deportations with this administration. The only thing that has changed is uh, the nationality where some of these people come. Some more recent uh, have requests have been from Brazilians and folks from Russia, from Venezuela, sometimes more from, from other, other countries. So we, we have to remember these are all of the bonds that we have placed for this year are asylum seekers. Every one of these persons flew from violence. Maybe their family was killed or they were threatened themselves. And then we put them in a detention center. That policy has not stopped. We are still putting asylum seekers in detention for months until they're able to come up with the thousands of dollars to pay for their bond. The amount of, of dollars that the government's asking for has not changed with this administration. All of the requests we get are thousands of dollars. The minimum bond is 1500 That's rare for us to see. They're usually $5,000, $10,000. And it's incredible that we know that these folks left everything home to come to ask for our help so they can survive. And then we ask for thousands of dollars. When we do that, we ensure that they stay uh, in detention where there's a pandemic going on inside. And so it's, again, Horrible to see that the Biden administration hasn't lived up to that promise either and instead have increased attention and hasn't been able to control the amount of COVID-19 cases. They should really liberate everyone that is in that detention center that's asking for asylum because when they're in there, they already go through an extreme vetting process. The reason why they are able to qualify for bond is because there's no criminal history, because they are asking for asylum. They've been already through the vetting process. There's really no reason for us to be asking for thousands of dollars for their liberty. And yet the Biden administration is still doing that. So the bond program is still very much needed. We just posted our 90th bond. We have a goal of 100 bonds this year. 
Last year, we posted 69 bonds. We were hoping we didn't have to do that work anymore. But here we are. The, the need has actually increased, not decreased with this administration. Our Green Card for Kids program is still ongoing, still very much needed. There's still children that are suffering abuse, abandonment, or neglect by one or both parents and are becoming part of the system. And we help them uh, with an attorney. When we talk about the children, some of these children are unaccompanied and going through the border, but they already have family here waiting for them. Or they had to be sent alone because there's no venue for them to migrate as a family unit because the Biden administration is not taking in families. So the Biden administration says unaccompanied minors are exempt under Title 42. Children that are alone crossing the border can do so, but not with their parents. So it creates an incentive for parents to send their children alone. So that's the challenge that we keep saying we don't want to see children take this risk, but then we don't process them as a family unit. So some of these children housed there um, had already family, and it was a matter of reunifying. And I know they've reunified over 2,000 people in that space because there's already family here willing to take them in. And, and we really do have to work better in not creating incentives that separate families or that push them as a family unit to cross through the desert and risk their lives. The biggest difference between the Trump administration and Biden's, experts say, is that the majority of the children that had been held in detention by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, otherwise known as ICE under Trump, often inside cages and at risk of physical and psychological abuse, have now mostly been moved to shelters run by the Department of Health and Human Services, headed by Latino Secretary and former California Attorney General Javier Becerra. But what are those facilities like? Conditions at those shelters are usually better than those run by ICE, but they're not great either. Reports have found that thousands of kids still have to sleep on floor mats using aluminum blankets and on fluorescent lights all night. Two HHS shelters in Houston and one in Pennsylvania had to be closed within weeks of opening because of poor living conditions. And while the government has worked to process undocumented immigrants much faster than Trump, Finding sponsors for the kids and hiring administrative contractors to do so, some kids have been in shelters for up to 48 days. Additionally, the shelters have been getting larger and larger, making it difficult to maintain any sense of educational and nutritional consistency in their lives there. The Fort Bliss shelter, inside one of the U.S. Army's largest bases in the country, located in El Paso, Texas, houses about 5,000 children at the moment. I want to go briefly back to the part where the government is asking for a lot of money from refugees, and that's where for the need for the bond comes from, that there's a discrepancy in the amounts that are asked for these refugees that don't have this money, that have already spent thousands of dollars getting to this place. I think part of the reason why there was the discrepancies was because it came down to individual agents right at the border that would request different amounts of money. Is that particular issue still the case? And is that why it's not just 1,500 across the board? At the moment, there are still a lot of rogue officers left on the ground. Uh, and the Biden administration has uh, taken steps to create a different culture, right? From day one, 
the Biden administration said, we're not going to call uh, people illegal immigrants and we're going to call them non-citizens. And that was a welcomed rhetoric and kept for months. However, the chief of Border Patrol, Scott uh, Rotney, in office for, for a long while, for months, which was very problematic, but now has um, forced his his uh, retirement. But there's still a lot of officers on the ground that are not in, aligned with welcoming spirit of, of migrants. And, and with that comes all the power and discretion that these officers have on the ground. When they encounter someone in the desert, they have to do a case-by-case evaluation to see whether that person is a Title 42 exemption, to see whether they are they can allow the family to cross to the, the U.S., whether to put that person in detention. And then the officers have discretion on determining the amount, if they're going to be put in detention, what the amount is going to be in order to release them. It's all up to an officer whether that person qualifies for a bond. And we have asked repeatedly for the policies in place, our manual something in writing that says how they make this determination and we still haven't received it. So really it's up to an officer to decide whether to place a $10,000 bond for someone coming from Haiti or a $1,500 bond for a woman coming from another country. The pattern we saw last year was people that were coming from African countries received the highest amount of bonds meaning that we, if we wanted to get them out, we had to pay 10, 15, 20, sometimes even $30,000 to get someone from, like say someone from Cameroon out or Nigeria out of the, the detention center. A record number of African migrants are now crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. During one recent week, Border Patrol agents in Texas' Del Rio sector stopped more than 600 African migrants. Most are from the DRC and Cameroon, while others are from Niger, Nigeria and Somalia. The group is part of a small but increasing proportion of migrants from countries other than Mexico and Central America, who slip into the southern United States without authorization. It's totally indiscriminate, just because they're black migrants from Africa. There is, unlike the criminal system, there is no schedule. In the criminal system, there's a scheduling where you look up the crime that you're being charged with, and then you have an idea of how much the, the, the bail is going to be. In immigration, there's no such thing. And so it's up to the officer to determine whether this person seems to be a risk or not. The evaluation is supposed to be whether the person is going to be a public uh, concern, safety concern, and whether that person is going to show up to court or maybe abscond. Once they term- determine that they do qualify for bond, they're, they're not a high risk uh, for public, meaning they have no criminal history, so we shouldn't really be concerned about public safety. And this person has a really good claim to asylum. So he's likely to show up to court like most asylum seekers, the majority of them show up to court. So there's really no reason to ask for 10, 15, 20, $30,000 from a migrant that went all across the globe, probably sometimes crossing 13 different countries. But to ask for $10,000, it's really ensuring that that person's going to stay in this detention center. And who profits from it? The corporations that are still in place. The system is still in place, even with this administration, where a private corporation is going to make money 
every single night the person is there. For every single person that sleeps in that detention center, there's a private corporation, Course Civic, making money. So the incentive to keep people in detention is still there. And for an an ICE officer that is anti-immigrant, there's nothing keeping him from being abusive and putting a $10,000 bond or $15,000 bond. Um, And there's nothing that those of us can do. If the migrant has legal representation, they may choose to ask an immigration judge to go over the determination, but they usually side with the ICE officer's decision from the beginning. And just to clarify, when they ask for a specific amount of money, you mentioned that the organizations, the corporations are making money from just the betting, from from having people overnight. But where is the specific money for the bond going to? So the money that folks come up with are usually from organizations and family members that put them the bond amount, the money to get someone out. And that it goes to the federal government and they're supposed to uh, hold it until the end of the case. If the person shows up uh, to their court hearings, ideally that money comes back to our bond fund and then we use those funds to get somebody else out in the future. But we're talking about millions of dollars that are being misused. We're asking the community to come up with millions of dollars to get our people out. Instead of seeing the numbers drop, the requests from these agents saw an increase. We saw them ask for more money. And you would have people, as as much as 100 people in one unit, uh, eight people sleeping in, in in a cell, in bunk beds. And if somebody had signs of having COVID, like say a fever, uh, they could be in that unit with you and they left you there. And even though we were ready to pay bond for you, they would tell us that you had to stay in there for, for 14 days and, you know, hope that you don't die in there. We created all the circumstances for these private corporations to profit off the pain of these folks. And so during the pandemic, we had calls every single day coming in of someone saying that they were fearing for their lives in the detention center, thinking that they were going to die from COVID in there. We have heard of cases and place bonds for folks that show visibly signs of torture. We had a, a guy that had third degree burns in his body and his family was burned alive in front of him. And by a miracle, he survived, went through Brazil and up through 13 different countries, including Mexico, and made it to our border. And the U.S. government placed him in this prison, this federal prison, and asked for thousands of dollars for his release. Now, these asylum seekers come quite literally with nothing on their backs. Showing credible fear, either of persecution or torture at an asylum interview, is the critical part of the process that allows the U.S. government to process immigrants, at which point the government is asking for these bonds. According to Homeland Security, quote, persecution is on account of your race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion if they are returned to their country. But determining whether a person's claim is accurate and what questions are asked is usually not perfectly defined, leading to poor decisions. For example, border advocates have found that most immigrants do not always have lawyers present at these interviews, which means the refugee is at risk of being manipulated, misunderstood, 
or unfairly dismissed by Border Patrol agents, who themselves usually don't have the training to ask the right questions. In 2016, the U.S. Commission on International Relations found that in 86.5% of cases where a fear question was asked, quote, the record inaccurately indicated that it had been asked and answered. So what is the psychological and legal advantage for a person to be outside of the shelter while they wait for their court hearing? So just because we postpone for them, it doesn't mean that they're now U.S. citizens or that they have a path to legal permanent residency. That's not the case at all. They still have a long process to go through. But there are so many advantages to posting bond for someone and and allow them to continue their case uh, outside of the prison system. So for when they have more chances of acquiring uh, legal representation, of hiring a lawyer, getting competent uh, legal representation in court so that they don't have to present themselves in front of a judge. Two, their mental health um, is super important because it is the, the conditions in the detention center are just so horrible in there. And some have contemplated suicide and some have actually committed suicide in these detention centers because it's so harsh in there. The treatment um, in there, you know, they're not only fear of COVID-19, but harassment and some sometimes even by the own uh, ICE officers and the private uh, agents that are, are supposed to be taking care of, of these folks that are the reason why p- people commit suicide in there. They just lose hope in there. And once they are released outside, it's it's very important that we try to post bonds for as many people as possible because their mental health is so much better once they are released from, from the prison. And they can better prepare themselves by obtaining evidence. You also mentioned that you had family yourself that was involved with the bond issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that experience informed the Border Angels bond program? I personally had my own brother put in a detention center. So I, as an undocumented person, I know that it is something that needed to get done to have a bond program of this sort because my own family was being asked $15,000 to get my brother out of a detention center here in Imperial Valley. And we didn't have anything saved up. We had to sell a ton of things. And even then we couldn't come up with $15,000. And so after two months of my brother being put in the detention center, we finally had a court hearing where the judge reviewed the arbitrary amount that the ICE officer has set of $15,000 and reduced it to $1,500. We were able to liberate my brother from that horrible place. And that was, you know, years ago before a pandemic. And learning from that experience personally, I knew that we had to get some sort of program out there and building on what other organizations had done. I think we did a really good job in being efficient. And uh, we're a very small organization, but that allows us as well to, on a moment's notice, get in there and post these bonds. So sometimes even the day of when we hear we get the request that same day where they're at ICE posting bonds. And so that's been a, an advantage that we have. The second beautiful thing that we saw with this is that we had allocated only $50,000 for this, for this program. And then we had so much support from the community. We have folks fundraising, selling pencils. Somebody raised $3,500 selling pencils that said abolish ICE on there. And that paid for one bond. You know, we had people selling cookies and cakes and donating their art and doing DJ programs and donating yoga classes. And so all of that 
made it so that we can keep funding this program. So a lot of people that are asylum seekers that have their sponsors, since they can't work, are working as day laborers. Tell us what Border Angels does with them. So some of these folks live off their trucks, their cars, and whatever little money they do get, they send to their families in their home countries. And with the pandemic and people not, um, not, not doing these home projects, they have been seriously impacted. And they're definitely suffering with lack of work. What has always stayed true and, and the same is that they've always been very vulnerable to harassment. And they would work all day sometimes. And at the end of the day, some, someone would threaten them with calling ICE and in order to not pay them. And so that's why there was this need for us to step in and offer legal support, offer immigration legal advice, also labor law advice and letting them know that they do have rights, especially in California. That might necessarily be true all across the U.S., but here in California, laborers are protected. Whether we have documentation to work lawfully or not, we have labor laws that protect us. And then there's also something called a U visa in immigration that if if someone becomes a a victim of a crime, they may therefore perhaps qualify for for a U visa. What is the one main thing that you may be surprised the day laborers that they have a right to that they didn't know? You know, sometimes we come from countries where we don't trust the government, we don't trust the police. And we come from countries where if you if you call the cops, you know, you you might become a victim then instead of receiving support. And so they when they come here, they don't necessarily trust people, right? And and I completely understand that as an undocumented person. I too didn't trust anyone growing up. And um, I still kind of don't trust anyone in uniform. <laughs> but they're surprised to know that there are rights, that they have rights to report a crime should they become a victim of a violent crime. Uh, and not only do they have the right to report it, but they might also qualify for a U visa should there should, should it be a, a crime that qualifies them for protection. And then therefore, eventually, years down the road, because our system, again, is so bad luck, provide a path to citizenship down the road. But uh, many folks are not aware that the U visa is available should they become uh, victims of a violent crime. And and then more than anything, it's just I think they really do appreciate the fact that people care enough and support and and just having a conversation and, and asking them how they're doing. And I think they really do appreciate that. Um, and, and they sometimes, you know, recognize uh, us by names um, or the T-shirt. They see Border Angels and they're like, oh, okay, guys. My very first uh, day labor outreach, that's what struck me the most, that even even a, a banana, you know, brought a, a smile to their face and they were just so grateful that they had that human interaction. Border Angels is not the only organization in the U.S. working to help undocumented immigrants. Those like Al Otro Lado in Los Angeles and Calma in the Bay Area fundraise for this work. Some provide day laborers with hot meals, others offer asylum refugees legal help, and others help them find temporary lodging. Calma in the Bay Area is an independent spinoff from the Bay Area chapter of Border Angels. Its founders focused on helping the undocumented with immediate needs and navigating the U.S. legal system and accompanying them to court hearings and doctor appointments. One of the organization directors, Kenny Cepeda, told me that most undocumented people have no formal support 
because many of the families they stayed with are often relatively poor themselves, all of which made Kalma's work even more critical when the pandemic hit 18 months ago. At the time, Kalma was helping four families with those services. Since then, they've helped more than 50, often through local partnerships like San Francisco's Mission Meals. That means that on average, Karma is using about $300 to $350 a month per family in one of the most expensive American cities. Sometimes, individual volunteers help gather resources themselves. They have plunked down their own money to buy people groceries or even prepare culturally specific meals like pupusas or pozoles for them. This type of personal one-on-one connection distinguishes these organizations and has been crucial during COVID. Calma volunteers have given people masks, hand sanitizing gel, and helped them sign up to get vaccines. Cepeda himself got started in Calma when he hosted an undocumented homeless person on his couch. If you don't know, most undocumented can have difficulties renting out a home because they don't have credit history and don't show up in a criminal background check, a big no-no for landlords. Cepeda also told me most families he worked with are often released from detention centers with trackers on their ankles and are not allowed to leave a certain radius, just like house arrest. I know that you have a a couple of minutes left. (laughs) A a final question for you. Is there anything to look forward to in the next few months towards the end of the year? What do you expect will happen in regards to what's happening with a lot of these undocumented immigrants at the border? We, we have hope that more and more people learn about what's happening here at the border. This is something that we spoke at a congressional hearing. We submitted testimony. I had the privilege as the director of Border Angels and the chair of the Senegal Immigrant Rights Consortium to submit testimony in a congressional hearing about border issues. And we proposed this to stop this idea of detention, criminalization of our community, to instead apply principles that are more aligned with where we want to go as a country. Well, Dusa, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for uh, explaining what's going on. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Almost two years ago, while starting research for our media company, I sat down with some Latinx in tech on a grassy hillside next to Oakland's Lake Merritt. They, along with other people, had brought supplies like t-shirts to donate to Border Angels. Before COVID-19, the San Diego organization had a Bay Area chapter, and their volunteers were taking the supplies to Tijuana to migrant families living in shelters and awaiting asylum interviews. I took the opportunity to talk to them about how they were feeling as Latinx residing in the United States in the middle of ICE rates affecting the community. As you'll see, some felt helpless, while for others, their position in tech empowered them. Let's go one by one. We'll talk to people and let's find out who they are. We're going to start to my left with Noemi. Hi, I'm Noemi. Um, I'm originally from the East Bay in Concord. Parents are from Jalisco, Mexico. And um, I work for a small startup called Sourcecraft. We make code search for other companies. My name is Jessica Gonzalez. I'm born and bred in San Francisco, first daughter of immigrants in, from Mexico and El Salvador. Hi, uh, my name is Pablo Frias. Uh, my dad was from Santiago, Chile. I'm a software engineer in the Bay Area. How are you feeling in regards to the situation with undocumented immigration? 
I, I can think of like two anecdotes that I think apply here. One is that I recently helped my brother move uh, to California from New York. And when I was helping him getting rid of stuff and throwing stuff away, a woman actually came by to pick up a bed frame that he couldn't sell. And it turned out she was taking care of a, a little girl whose parents had been taken to the border. And she was left in, in New York. And so, like, you know, just this random woman out of the goodness of her heart was taking care of her and, like, you know, keeping her in school and providing for her in a situation where, you know, she really doesn't know where her parents are. This girl was probably only six years old. And I, I guess it, it's hard for me to, to think of, like, I don't know, any, like, any polite way of describing a policy that would put people in that position. And, look, whatever the number is of, like, success rate of getting these children back with their parents, like, it can't be 100%. It's not going to be 100%. And, you know, like, what kind of world would it, are we trying to make if, if that little girl never finds her parents ever again, you know, because of us? And I think about um, if my dad was still alive now, my understanding is that, you know, he overstayed his visa when he was here. Like, in, he was an illegal immigrant, essentially. And yeah, like, I really want to know what his perspective would be. Crazy Chilean socialist himself. <laughs> Imagine he'd have his own thoughts. But uh, this stuff hits home, I think, for, for a lot of us. Like, my, my parents were immigrants, so, you know, they came here in the sorry, 80s. Sorry, so oh, no, me. I'm back. That was always, always something that I was very aware of. Like, you had mentioned, you know, being able to translate things, and you kind of had to take on that role early on. It was something that, you know, was always very apparent to me, and, you know, we we have a lot of privilege now and, and I think we, we need to use that um, because there are a lot of people that were that are in the same shoes or in even more difficult shoes than you know my parents were like our parents were or, you know grandparents or whoever it was um, so I think it's it's time for us to pay it forward we have you know most of us have a very solid platform and, and we have a lot of ways in how we can give back and you know not now's the time thank you Noemi what do you feel about the role of technology and whether it has done enough to help the immigration situation. What do you think is the technology role up to now and where should it go? This is Jessica here. Now, honestly, I think technology is a par for good and it's a par for bad. You know, it's kind of like that classic theology of, of a hammer, you know. You can use it to build or you can use it to destroy. I think from all, all of us at some personal scope, you know, we've all had some sort of connection to being either first immigrants, second generation, or whatever it is, right? I think our duties, you know, going forward is to be like, look, we can build this technology, whether as through engineering or being executive assistants or being able to whatever scope it is within the tech sphere, but use it to good. And I think what's being able done now from what I've seen is being able to spread the word Anytime there's ice rays or thing like that, or just being an, an, an advocate, you know, if you see someone who's like freaking out the bus stop, just be like, look, I'm going to stay with you. Let me, let me wait for you right now. Or just literally speak up. The hardest thing in the world is just being able to say like, hey, no, she has rights no matter what, like, or he or she has rights. Like you cannot, you can and you cannot do that. And I think the hardest thing, and I think a lot of atrocities in life have been because people have been quiet. So we need to speak up because at the end of the day, you need to look at these people like they're your theas, 
they're your uncles, they're your primas, they're literally, they are your family members. Because at the end of the day, the Latin community, whether you're from Guyana, you're from Chile, you're from Brazil, you're from Jalisco, you're from El Salvador, Nicaragua, whatever it is, we are from a generation that literally had to deal with a lot of stuff from very early on. We need to be able to, you know, you know, as gritty as it sounds, like get our balls in the break and like literally say something when you see it. This is our role in life to be like, no, 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 like I got your back because this is your legal right. And that's a lot of things that gets lost in, you know, in, in translation, is they think they have no legal rights. Jessica, how do you make your leadership understand that they need to pay more attention to these issues, that it's also positive for the community? No, seriously, you call them out. Like, this is the thing. Like, it's it's very, you feel as an employee, like, oh, I shouldn't say this, but like, no, believe me. As someone who's worked in tech for 10 years, a lot of these tech companies from their employees are like, why are you doing this? You know, from the employee standpoint, you know? They're just like, well, you know, you're doing this, X, Y, and Z, put up or shut up. But the thing is, it doesn't happen unless, as employees, you band together. Because at the end of the day, one voice is one thing, a fist is multiple. It's a lot. So being able to be unified in the fact, and this is what I love about Latinos, we're unified as F, you know? No matter what you say, we, from some reason, whether it be like food, like music, we get unified. If we can just use that power and unify ourselves with a collective voice, we can do it. But a lot of it is just like being able to say something. But again, 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 we are a culture that has have parents who are just like, don't say anything, you know? keep to your place don't say anything because your your employment might be no like no hold on now like this is i'm contributing to this company like where are these values going towards you got to be able to like to speak up you're going to use it to destroy or to build let's see what it is to build and like literally if you get to a unity of folks are able to say like no this is not all right you need to be able to like do right by people believe me these companies will follow and they do if they have enough pressure from it we just got to be that, you know, unfortunately, like that, you know, that that pot in their shoe, you know. You got to be like that, you know, like that, like my mom always said, that, that thorn in their side. And they will do it. But we just got to be, as a community, to be unified enough to do it. And we're also talking about specific technologies that certain companies are making, right? So we hear of uh, like AI technologies that are maybe using you know, like facial recognition, and then, then they sell it to, you know, like, ICE or the FBI or something, and then that tech is being used to incarcerate certain people in different communities, right? So, yeah, Pablo. If I may. Um, I think, you know, to speak to that point, it's like you can't just complain in the dark where no one can hear you. And I think to to expand on that point, it would be like, you you can't also complain in an echo chamber. And to speak of, like, technologies that affect these issues, obviously it would be social media. And while, you know, it's great that we can have communities like this where we come together and can discuss these issues, potentially do some good, I do have a bit of a a personal worry that, to some degree, like, what a lot of people do on social media is speaking to their echo chamber. It's speaking to already like-minded people. And it's almost, it's almost like a, like letting the steam out of a pressure cooker. It's, It's letting people imagine that they are doing something productive by the phrase of signal boosting people who already agree with them to more people who already agree with them not really doing any good so I guess my personal concern would be that like now that we have kind of the, this tool which you know obviously 
democratizes our communication and in many countries has been used, you know, to try to take down dictators even. Maybe for a lot of us in the first world, it's, it is relieving that pressure instead of what might build up to, to greater action that actually manifests in the real world. That isn't speaking to a solution, obviously, but, but certainly a concern. I think that, you know, I don't know at what point there was kind of like a monopoly of like being American or being patriotic on the right in this country. But the idea that like, you know, the, the kind of people who would go out and destroy those water bottles in the desert, which is a video I think many, many of us might have seen. Or even to, to something else that, that you said, Jessica, about like people saying like, oh, they don't have rights, which is certainly a meme that I've heard like whenever I've gone outside my own bubble. This, this, I, yeah, the, the, the idea that like human rights are only extended to, to Americans in, in, in the way of like, you know, people from the United States. And this is like, you know, isn't this something that we've seen like many times, whether it's like a reservation or a plantation or Manzanar, like we're not going to be proud of this in many years. And I really hope that, I don't know, like many patriotic, you know, warm-blooded Americans will, won't feel like, you know, people from Central and South America aren't, aren't deserving of the same rights that they are. And certainly to extend that, yeah, that, that shared sense of humanity. Not to say that I have full hope that, say, in 40 years, and we're all looking back at all the steps our country has taken in this administration, however long it lasts. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I think that, you know, if enough, if enough Americans do step up to the plate, we are, we, we'll hopefully see some walking back of this, have something we can be a little bit more proud of in the long run. Since that conversation happened a while ago, I reached out to the group individually to ask if they had recently brought up these immigration issues at their tech workplaces. Most of them were busy or did not reply in time for this program, but Jessica Gonzalez did. And she said that she has not specifically brought it up because it may affect fellow Latinx in a negative way at those companies. She also said that it's unlikely many other people have brought up these issues because, she says, quote, if you really think about it, we have been conditioned because of legal status and status quo to stay quiet and stay in our lane. Before the pandemic stopped many in-person efforts from immigrant advocates, we talked to Sylvie Carina, a nonprofit worker based in the Bay Area in California. At the time, she was the representative of the Bay Area chapter of Border Angels. She became involved when she saw an Instagram video showing California Border Patrol officers slashing water bottles left in the desert for migrants crossing through it. She saw them dump the water out, laughing as they did it. I actually I saw a video that was produced, just like scrolling through Instagram, uh, that showed California Border Patrol officers slashing water bottles that had been left in the desert for migrants crossing through the desert. Uh, and they were dumping the water out and sort of laughing, and it was just this horrible video. And it really moved me. And I remember thinking, this is just some sort of evil. And I didn't really know how to make sense of it. Angered by what she saw, she reached out to Border Angels and helped start a new chapter. She has now moved on to work with Calma, the second organization we talked about in the first part of the episode, and which works with day laborers. But Sylvie's description of the people inside the shelters at the time of our conversation is still essential, 
because thousands still suffer in the same way, in the same place. Before we get to that... Hey everybody, I'm taking some time here in the middle of the podcast to remind you to share it with friends and family and to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. More followers and activity on those sites help us get more attention from them. Just look for the podcast and you can also look for me at Formoso on Twitter and Formoso on Instagram. Since we're doing reminders, don't forget to check out the community's online event page. Thanks. Can you paint me a picture briefly about the shelters? So they're located in Tijuana. They're like gymnasium-sized shelters. What does that look like? They're all different. Generally, what I've seen, I've been down about three different times in the last six months or so. And what I've seen are usually large buildings or people just kind of, you know, church groups or individuals who have private spaces that they open up and they can hold anywhere from you know, 50 people to uh, two to 300 people um, in one space. It's common to see large rooms and families will share a tent. And so there will be hundreds of tents lined up in a big auditorium style room and where, you know, families are sharing these small spaces. And then there's a common space for, for people to, you know, utilize. There's a shared kitchen, there's um, shared bathrooms and that sort of thing. And, I mean, Tijuana is huge. I had no idea. I'd actually never even been to Mexico <laughs> before starting this work, and I had no idea how big Tijuana was. And so, you know, region by region, the shelters differ a bit. Some are a bit more rural. Some are right in, you know, like downtown and in larger city centers. And within the shelters, there's mostly families, a lot, a lot, a lot of children. And there are shelters that are just for men that are traveling by themselves and from diverse countries, Central America, Haiti, Brazil, Venezuela. Can you give me a sense of what it's like? How are they feeling? It's impossible, I think, for me to know or understand. I, a part of the, the reason that we bring volunteers, or I guess the, one of the really important things about bringing volunteers into the shelters is that we encourage you know, people to interact and, and talk with people. And um, some people go down and they don't even speak a word of Spanish, but you can bring a coloring book or like origami paper and play with the kids and entertain them. You'll go and see moms with new babies and sit down and ask them about the baby and just kind of make casual conversation. And I think that at least for me, I feel like what it does is bring the message of solidarity, that there are people here in the United States that really do care and that are showing up week after week. Oftentimes we have volunteers who go every weekend. We have a, one woman who's part of our team, an older woman, and she goes just about every, probably once a month, which is really incredible. She makes the drive down. You see a lot of kids, just the resiliency. When you go, mostly what I do is just play. Like the last time I was there, we are just playing baseball with, with two little boys and we're just goofing around. And I think that's part of what they're hoping that we, that volunteers do when you go into those spaces is bring kind of some relief and distraction. What were they like? What were the boys like? What, do you, what did you see when you were playing with them? I mean, the entire population of people who are in those shelters, I would say, have experienced extreme trauma and are currently ex experiencing trauma because you're living in a shelter where you're sort of in limbo and you don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. And just because you have your asylum interview, which can take months to get um, appointment for an interview, 
So just because you have an appointment for an interview, um, you're still going through the process of trying to get into the United States and what that looks like, which I'm not actually, I couldn't really speak to what that process looks like, but just knowing that there's so much uncertainty in front of you. And I think that for the parents and adults who have a better understanding of what they're facing, there's a heaviness, but there's this incredible resiliency because they've already been through so much and they've already made this journey. And with the kids, it's, I mean, it's heartbreaking, but they seem just like normal kids, you know? They're just goofy kids. They're Anybody who's willing to, like, color with them or, like, kick a soccer ball around makes their whole world. And they're sad to see you go. And that sort of, I think, I don't know exactly how to, like, make sense of that. So you mentioned the kids. I'd love to know if maybe if you've heard of a story that you think illustrates that heaviness that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple things that, at least for me personally, kind of stick out. We were doing art with a kid who um, drew three different airplanes, and one was going to, and then I, you know, explain explain what this picture is about, and one was going to Central America, where they were from, one was going to Mexico, and one was going to the United States, and this was the thing that was on this kid's mind, you know, this is what they chose to draw, was this idea of travel, and, and traveling in an airplane, and what their next destination looked like and where they'd come from. And that was intense. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, and I don't really know, again, like how to kind of make sense of that. And I feel like that's something that the U.S. and the government in Mexico, and honestly, you know, all of the entities that are responsible for this crisis is going to have to reconcile with is that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of young children who are going to grow into adulthood with this severe trauma. And how does that affect this generation of, of young people and their contributions when they hopefully all make it to safety in the United States? Hopefully I'll make it to the United States and hopefully I'll make it to safety because just because you come into the United States doesn't by any stretch mean that you're safe. So it's very layered. There's another... Another girl that, I think she was like 12 or 13, she's from Honduras, and we were folding origami and playing, and she was showing me how to make like boxes and bow ties out of paper. And I asked her, I was like, you're a really incredible artist. This is something that you want to do. Do you want to be a teacher? And she's like, you know, I actually have a whole notebook of all her drawings, and I can show it to you, please. And she ran into her, you know, bedroom area and came back with this notebook. And she was the, a phenomenal artist. And I, my friend and I were sitting next to each other, and she opened the book, and our jaws dropped. Like she was incredible artist, and just with, like, paper and pencil, you know? And This was at, at the shelter, yeah. you believe. Wow. Yeah, and this is a 13-year-old girl who's been out of school for a number of months, and I don't actually know. I think it's really important when volunteers go into those spaces that we don't ask those personal questions unless they're offered, and it feels like a conversation that we can have. But I think that's one thing that we really try to drive home is that we're there to just sort of bring some joy and bring these bring support, but absolutely not there to pry on anybody's personal life. So we don't ask those specific questions, but she offered that she hadn't been in school, but that she loves to draw. And she gave my friend and I both a piece of art that of course still have. And that sits with you because then you drive home and we drive back over the border into California and from Tijuana into San Diego can take I mean I've heard of it taking anywhere from like nine hours depending on the time of day that you leave to I've only ever had to wait like two hours but you're sitting in the car and you're talking about waiting at the border to go through us, for Americans to go back into the states yeah and it just feels so weird 
because I really can't articulate it, but it is just sort of this like, you leave and you wonder what's going to happen to this girl. Am I going to see her the next time I visit this shelter? And, you know, and here it is. It takes us no time at all just to cross back over. And yeah, I don't know. It's bizarre. So you mentioned the connection with the immigrants there. What was the emotional moment for you while you were down there? I mean, there's a lot. (laughs) I sort of prepare myself because I... I'm there to be as supportive and effective and efficient as possible. And I, I want to be really respectful of people's space. So oftentimes we'll have people who volunteer with us and they volunteer with other organizations. And I rode in a car from San Diego down to Tijuana with a man who was a lawyer who volunteers with an organization called Al Otro Lao, which is a legal services organization. And <clears throat> he didn't speak Spanish, but one of his intentions for going down there was to check in with families and, you know, through the shelter directors, check in with families and see who had just arrived, what the situation was and where he could be of support, who was of immediate need for legal support. And he was talking to a young kid, maybe 13 year old, and asked me to translate for him because he didn't speak Spanish. And he he explained that he was a lawyer and that he, you know, wanted to see if there was an opportunity to be of support. And was it okay if he could ask him some personal questions? And the boy said, yeah, that's okay. And we asked his mom to come. And, you know, I think just being really mindful of protocol around speaking to people and asking them these really potentially really triggering questions. And so we're speaking to this boy and he basically kind of just like straight faced was, you know, he's from El Salvador and there were gangs in his community. And they they told him basically that if he didn't join the gang, that they would kill him. And it was sort of like just straight face, like it was routine. This is just like one of thousands of stories that you hear. And this is the reason why, um, one of the reasons why there's so many young, especially young boys in these shelters. And so I'm translating this to the lawyer and just sort of like, holy shit, you know, I just didn't know how to like hold it. So I just kind of held it together. And I was like, he said that, you know, he, he was approached by gangs and they said that if he didn't join that they were going to kill him. And when he said no, he had, you know, maybe 12 hours or something to, to leave. And mom was standing right there and nodding along, you know, yeah. And that's what happened and that's why we left. And, and then later, you know, talking to this man who was a lawyer who's been doing this and, you know, working in these communities for a long time was saying that you see that. You see young women who are, you know, solicited by the gang to be a, like, quote-unquote girlfriend. And they're basically at risk of being, you know, passed through the gang and if they don't leave. And if they say no, then maybe there's risk of a family member getting killed. And all just for, you know, being born in, into a neighborhood or a community where there's this instability. And when doing this work, you hear these stories a lot. And every single time, it's really obviously really, really jarring. I'd heard these stories before, you know, and I'd I'd done research and I obviously wanted to walk into doing this kind of work with at least a bit of like history and knowledge around what was happening. But to actually like hear it out of this kid's mouth was really, that was probably one of the most intense moments for me. That sounds awful. What was the mom doing while this was happening? How, what was her presence and demeanor like? I mean, that was sort of the thing. And I think that's, the trauma is that, you know, he was standing there and it was just plain face, like, this is the story. This is why I left. And she was nodding along and offering a bit of like, yeah, they said, you know, and we had 12 hours and and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a big dramatic thing. It wasn't like tears. She was 
just kind of holding it together because that's what you do when you're in this like extended period of, of being under extreme stress and trauma is that you just you hold it together and you tell the story as if it, you were telling any other story. If you can, I'm not sure if you can, especially considering the the attorney's work. The what was the point of asking that? What was he trying to find out? It's basically asking what they were fleeing their country and whether they had a case for asylum. So understanding and now I can't really speak to the intricacies of the system and sort of the process for asking for asylum now, but it's become really, really difficult to plead an asylum case. And I've heard that there are even instances where if you say that you're fleeing violence, that you have to have some sort of proof. So sometimes they tell people, well, if there was a murder, if your if your father was murdered, did you take pictures of it, you know? Or do you have the note that they left on your door telling you that they'd come back in 12 hours to kill you, you know? And um, It's awful. Yeah, and and... You know, and that doesn't even go into, like, domestic abuse cases where women are, who are fleeing domestic violence or, I don't know, it, 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 none of it makes any, any sort of sense. And it's constantly changing, you know, week by week, month by month, how difficult it is right now to, to find, which puts them even at, still at risk because, you know, there's people who even come from parts of Mexico who they're in Tijuana that's maybe like nine or ten hours away, but they're still potentially at risk for if they're being, you know, followed by gangs or if it's women leaving di- domestic violence situations. How much into the future are the documented people they're thinking about? What are their goals and dreams? And has that changed since they've gotten there to see how hard it is to get in here, especially at this moment of time with this administration? As far as what their goals and dreams are, I mean, people want to find safety and they want to find stability. But I do feel like it's a it's a really good question to ask, especially the young people. Like, what are you interested in? What's something that you enjoy doing? And what do you see yourself doing when you grow up? And because that's still top of mind for a lot of the young kids. It's like, what, what do you enjoy? What makes you happy? What are some of the things that people can do through technology that you know of that can help even here in the local area or down in San Diego or down in Tijuana? Mm-hmm that people could use that could help out? Absolutely. Huge advocate for talking about what's happening on social media in a respectful way, not not an advocate for sharing pictures of dead bodies or, you know, sort of like poverty porn, but absolutely talking about here's what's happening and here's what we can be doing to support, whether it's calling people or donating or showing up at events. I think that in everything you do, you should be mindful of how your work affects your community and how your work can be of service. So whether it's in tech, whether you're an artist, whether you are like me and you work in marketing. Also, though, I would say being mindful of following the money trail. A lot of people work for companies and they are completely unaware that their companies are down the line supporting these, these industries in some ways. Either they have contracts with ICE or they have contracts with CBP or a CEO of their parent company has donated millions of dollars to the Trump campaign. And we're starting to see some of the tech workers, for example, that are becoming more aware and are actually sometimes protesting inside of their own companies. And part of that is speaking out and, and it's it's dissenting. A lot of times, like for example, I know that Salesforce had offered employees we're protesting Salesforce having contracts with ICE, and ICE uses their their um, systems or their services. And so the employees protested, and in response, Salesforce says, okay, we're going to donate a million dollars and split it between all of these different organizations that are doing work to support immigrant services and families that have been separated, et cetera, et cetera. And it's another thing that we think about, too, is like divestment protesting. It sort of falls within the same line of like, you know, pulling your money out of industries that are that are exploiting people. 
right? Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you. And now we'll speak to two of the founding members of Soultron, a San Francisco music collective focused on making music that speaks to social justice of the type we've discussed today. Song composer and wind controller maestro Daniel Riera and trombonist Ruben Sandoval talked to us from Daniel's studio in the Bay Area about how the band combines a wide variety of Latin sounds, from conga to Brazilian percussion and more, into a complete original sound that embraces the Latinx diaspora. Excited to, to talk to you. I was talking to Neil about you. It sounds like you've been doing some work with him and that you just finished. Did you finish a whole album with him? It's not a whole album yet. We did three songs. We wanted we wanted to do like 10, but because of the pandemic and just everything being harder, being remote a lot, we got three done. But I'm really proud of those three because they're very detailed. You know, we like kind of, we took our time on that. When was that? When When did you guys work on that? That was this year or last year? We had started working on these songs. Actually, these go back a couple years. Some material that's been a brewing, and yeah, we it came time to finally get these done. So we kind of went into crackdown mode and really just went to work on these. So we kept some of the beats and the grooves, and then yeah, I mean everything else was done. All the live instrumentation was done here, uh, Daniel's studio mostly. Yeah, we had a. Yeah, our bass player is in Mexico, and one of our singers is in France, so it's sort of an international collaboration. I'd love to know more about how you got together to start the band. Some of you, or maybe both of you, are from the Mission in San Francisco, so I'd love to get started there and get into how the band has developed over time. Cool. Well, I'm, I never lived in the Mission, but I went to school there, starting in elementary school, and also got really involved with things like Carnaval Festival and performing in that and performing music. So I really felt like I grew up in the mission and I was always, you know, spending a lot of time there. And uh, yeah, most of us in Soltron kind of came out of this mission arts community and a couple organizations like the Latin Jazz Youth Ensemble um, and Loco Bloco. Yes. Carnaval. Uh, School of the Arts. Right. A lot of us knew each other. We were in several of these things, maybe, and we knew each other. And um, we just it grew out of some jams that happened in a friend's garage and um, just kind of went from there. Yeah. We were just meeting in the garage, jamming. It started off as a percussion circle, actually. And those guys called a bunch of guys and those guys called a couple more guys and then we all came together and um yeah and it kind of grew we us i am from daily city personally but i also have been very shaped by the the mission my dad he came here from mexico when he was like three years old and then his family moved to the mission i would spend a lot of time and a lot of the youth programs and arts programs, that's, I mean, you know, that's why I started to learn to play salsa and everything. And yeah, same, yeah, local bloco, all, all these organizations sort of shaped my musical identity. So I think for a lot of us, that's the case. So when we started jamming in the garage, 
it all kind of fit together. We all kind of came from the same place musically. We're putting together a lot of these traditions of like Afro-Cuban music, Afro-Brazilian music, Latin rock and hip hop. I would say those are like the main influences that were kind of like disparate elements that are around the mission and you hear a lot and kind of like putting those together because we we grew up with all of that so it's really a fusion yeah there's a little bit of everything in every song before we get into some of the ideas behind the songs i'd love to know how both of you and the band itself have dealt with the pandemic over the last year and a half well uh, like i was saying before you started rolling we've all had to level up uh our skills this year when it comes to zoom when it comes to working remotely uh like i had to uh i got my studio together more i got mics got everything set up to record uh you know drums uh everything we needed to record in this room um and um yeah it's forced us to really to become self-sufficient you know like i was because we've been spending money on studios for like a lot of my career and now I'm I feel like after this I know I'm totally self-sufficient now. That's a pretty awesome feeling as well as um you know like one of the members of the band uh uh Rohai. Uh he's blind. So my way of working with him remotely was uh to remote control his computer over the internet and run the session on his uh, copy of Ableton Live on his computer. And he's there in his house with his microphone plugged in. And he kind of gets it to the point where I can uh, take over his computer and then just run the session from there. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty unique way of working. It, it was very different than just coming to Daniel's studio and just throwing stuff out there with him and just and molding it from there i mean we're always we've just been based on hanging out and vibing like with soltron from the beginning it was like it grew out of wanting to just hang out with each other and we were always i've been in a lot of bands too where it's professional and we show up and play the music and rehearse and whatever but we don't necessarily kick it outside of that it's just work you know but with soltron it was always the hang yeah. and then when that couldn't happen it was like we had to find new ways so we did a lot of zoom meetings and whatnot and then once people started getting vaccinated that's when we felt comfortable to start getting small groups together to record instruments one at a time yep it's great to finally be able to do that again and yeah not being able to meet it, it was you know we would we would have the material and we would just give each other feedback on the latest versions or arrangements that we changes we'd made and so we'd kind of just be setting stuff back and forth rather than just doing it right there in real time did did, did anybody suffer because of COVID-19 my family's been they were a-okay <laughs> well Ruben I caught COVID that was a little wrench in the uh, or I was a little monkey in the wrench yeah <laughs> that was in Late January into February, so I think around the very like probably the thirtieth, thirty first. Then I was good around the Valentine's Day actually, and yeah, I was during that time. I was just in the quarantine room, and luckily I had my laptop with me, so I was still working on the stuff. And um, 
yeah, it, it was sort of one of the things that uh, helped me keep sane during those couple weeks. I had to work through that, but uh, yeah, if anything, it helped me focus more because I had a bunch of free time and um, it just gave me more motivation to get it done because it just kind of uh, fueled me a little bit because, you know, I just, I was just thinking COVID can't stop me, can't stop the music. We have, we have too good music to uh, let it be stopped by some pandemic. So I'm a-okay now back, back out there and working. So part of the episode talks about the current immigration situation and undocumented people. Have you been able to comment on stuff that's been happening to Latinx people through your songs, a couple of the songs about gentrification. Um, have you been able to talk about some of the other issues uh, like immigration over the last few years? You know, we haven't addressed immigration directly in the songs, but we're all the children of immigrants. And we very much stand with immigrants. We stand with people being treated with humanity because that's clearly not how immigrants are treated in this country right now. And we've taken stands against police brutality in the music, and that's a big part of the situation with immigrants. We're firmly against kids in cages and the way that we're seeing people from Latin America treated at the borders and within the country. And uh, yeah, I think that's something that we need to explore deeper in, uh, in the songs. But it's interesting, like a lot of our experiences, like we're, we're the second or third generation Latinos already here. So our identity is not so much immigrant, but like the Chicano. Yeah, we're very much informed by the immigrant experience through our, our parents and, our, um, and their parents. And, uh, you know, it, yes, like Daniel said, we never directly addressed it, but it, it does come through in the music. We talk about arroz con canules for all our... Borinquen uh, gente out there, and um, yeah, we I feel like it's very, yeah very much informed by that point of view. I mean, and it comes through in the love of the culture that we present too, because we're very much about our roots in the band. Whether it's the rhythms that we use, or the references to food, or or references to other older music. Yeah, so we we wear all that on our sleeve, but we're also trying to be modern at the same time too right. and just reflect our reality and uh one of our new songs estamos aquí it is dedicated to everyone affected and displaced by gentrification but it is also uh dedicated to all latinos everywhere going through some struggle some of the songs that you worked on with neil i think that the package is called frisco tales tell me a little bit about that what does frisco tale tales mean to you in terms of, of the idea for the album? A lot of the ideas that are on our minds in our community, you know, gentrification is one. There's been like a series of fires, suspected arsons in the mission as a way to clear long-term tenants out of there. There's another song that I wrote called My City is Burning, and we haven't recorded that one yet. But that that's kind of the backdrop of that. But then also I wanted to tie it into like the way California has been burning every year because of uh, the environmental destruction and just like living in, in smoke now becoming a new normal. So that's another thing I've been thinking about too. What is your mindset 
in terms of how Mexican-Americans are treated in the music industry and their place in it? How do they see music that's coming from a band like Soltron that's Latin-influenced? You got a little Chicano, you got, you know, a lot of the, it's, you have English speakers, sometimes it's in Spanish. Well, you know, when we're, when we're creating, we're not thinking about all of that. We're just making stuff we think is cool. Yeah. But I will say that like Mexican music, I mean, not um, all Latin music really, but mainly Mexican and Puerto Rican music with the reggaeton movements. And also with the different regional Mexican styles, corridos, are having a huge moment right now. Um, I mean, if you look at any, if you look at a video of like Junior Ache or something, Rancho Humilde, they've got millions of views or Bad Bunny or something. Like these people are crossing over into the American uh, mainstream more and more. So, uh, you know, I think the public is ready for Latin music more than ever and crossing over. And there's a lot of freshness there that needs to be heard on a wider scale. And it will. Yeah. And the way we're making this, our music, it, it does combine a lot of traditional things and it does take a lot of things from the tradition, the Afro-Cuban tradition, the Afro-Caribbean and Afro-Cuban tradition. And that's because that's just what we've been formed by. We are Chicanos, so we have our Latin heritage influencing us, and we also grew up listening to American pop, so it's all in there. Yeah, and the way we're putting it all together, I think it could share the same space as all the great music that's booming right now from Latin America, but it's also sort of our, we're carving our own kind of thing, something maybe a little different than people are used to. What's some of your most interesting or important influences when it comes to a song like a strike as one or I leave where you, where you vacation. I, I love that last one. I live where you vacation. It's, it's, it's really interesting and it's really connected to that social aspect of it. Are there direct influences there that you're thinking about? Well, so Adriana, our singer wrote, I live where you vacation. And that was based on a, a popular hashtag from Puerto Rico, actually, where she's from. So she was writing it from the perspective of Puerto Rico, but it actually fits perfectly with San Francisco, too. They're both tourist places, you know. And it's this idea of um, people coming and taking what they want and leaving. You know, it's not, they're not coming to build community. What else is going on for you for the rest of the year? The Delta variant seems like it's, it's going crazy, but everybody is vaccinated. It's changing plans. What's the plan for Soltron? You may or may not have the opportunity to do shows. Well, fortunately, we do have one show coming up in September. That's going to be our first show in, what, four or five years, something like that. And so that, that's going to be at Yerba Buena Gardens Festival in San Francisco. Yep. It's a free public concert downtown. We're sharing the bill with the Latin Jazz Youth Ensemble of San Francisco. It's going to be their 20th anniversary. Yep. So it's a big day for me because I was in the first class of the Latin Jazz Youth Ensemble. And it's now been 20 years since that started. And it's still going. My parents run it. Uh, and Arturo was, Riera and Sylvia Ramirez and John Calloway, the musical director. Yes. Yeah. And Ruben came through it also. Yeah, it's been a big part of our, of our musical upbringing. I was in there from 10 to 18. 
so it's, it's pretty special. We're we're gonna be there. A lot of the alumni will be there, and it's cool to see. We'll be playing with the current students in the ensemble, so it's gonna be great to play with them and also see uh, what kind of things can come from the ensemble. Because I would say that would probably be my biggest musical, most influential experience learning and, and, and coming up as a musician. Dr. Calloway showed us a lot of the music and the repertoire and the tradition and how to do it faithfully. So we have that coming up. And we, you asked us earlier about these three songs and other plans with them. So with these, yeah, originally we did want to do an, uh, a full-length album we were thinking eight to ten songs. So we're going to use these songs as a little foundation. And we have a good amount of material written. So we just have to uh, finish finalizing the arrangements and get started uh, rehearsing. And we plan on, yeah, putting the rest of the album out. We're actually going to have our first rehearsal after this after this with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be Ruben, me, and my wife, Camille, who's... Uh, gonna be singing with us on uh, our next gig. We're gonna be working out the harmonies. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to uh, tell to anybody that's just th that might hear about you uh, through this podcast that uh, that they don't know about you or anything? What would you like them to know about maybe yourselves personally or the band or or where you think you're going? Well, I play an instrument called. Um, the electronic wind instrument or the one I play now is called the new rad and it's basically a electronic flute uh, and I use it to control a bunch of synthesizers and it's a it's a pretty unique instrument that allows me to play synths but with the expressiveness of a of a woodwind instrument so I'm blowing into it doing the fingerings like a flute or saxophone but it sounds like a crazy synth And that's a big part of our sound. And then Ruben is the trombonist and keyboard player and arranger extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we, we, me and Daniel have, uh, we've worked on these songs a lot. We've poured a lot of ourselves into them. And these are all come from our hearts. And these are our, these songs are our, um, I guess you could say our spirit and our souls on display for everyone. And we're happy to share that with people. And we just want to put that out into music. And we feel like it's something worth sharing with people. And we're just uh, people trying to make good music for people who appreciate good music. Maybe people who are looking for something a little different than what they're used to. So this this is for the adventurous people and also the people who... There's a little something for everyone, I think. There's there's a lot of good, a lot of good groovy things going on in there, so... Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate you making the time to talk to us. Yes, thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Bienvenido. Oye. En vivo. Nosotros. Jairo. Escucha bien este anuncio. Estamos aquí, estamos juntos. Basta 
este abuso Se sabe bien que no somos los intrusos Educamos y nos tratan de olvidar Demandamos justicia por aquellos que no están Estamos más unidos que nunca Porque la misión siempre triunfa La comunidad poniendo de su parte Siempre echan al barrio para adelante Caminando por la calle como el río Enfrentando un sistema tan jodido Este es un cuarto de mi bello San Francisco Corazón te lo dedico Soy el guerrero que nadie pudo conquistar Y te lo juro no voy a fallar no. Ninguna plaga me va a acabar Y tuve para la misión Escuche Esto es para la misión That's the end of the latest episode of the Progreso podcast. I want to thank all the guests that appeared on the pod and those we talked to for background research, including Professor Cecilia Menjivar at UCLA, Dulce Garcia and Dulce Aguirre at Border Angels, the two Dulces, Pablo Andres Frias, Jessica Gonzalez, and Noemi Mercado, who first put us in touch with Border Angels, Sylvie Corina and Kenny Cepeda from Calma, and Ruben Sandoval and Daniel Riera from Soltron. This episode was cut and produced by Neil Godbole at Airship Laboratories and written and hosted by myself, Jose Formoso. 
A reminder that we need your help in getting this show to more people's ears. So please share the episode with others you think will enjoy listening. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and other platforms. Finally, if you have an excellent idea for a show topic, send me an email through our social network accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Contact us there as well if you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the show. Thank you for listening and see you at El Progreso.